All right, open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And in a moment, we will stand for the reading of God's word. But first, I want you to see if any of these scenarios uh, rings a bell, okay? A coworker talks behind your back and spreads lies about you. Ever happened? A business associate cheats you and doesn't make things right. Or a family member stirs up, stirs up trouble but refuses to reconcile. Here's a few more. Uh, you're in charge of some volunteers, and one of them undermines your leadership. Or you're a supervisor, and one of your subordinates is insubordinate. Or you're a parent, and one of your children rebels. Now, each one of these situations calls for leadership. And the question is, what kind? Kind of leadership. We live in a time where um, there's this great leadership focus. Everyone seems to know what a leader looks like and what a good leader should be and do and all that. And the world will tell you what a leader is supposed to be and what a leader is supposed to do. But the Bible will give you the truest perspective the Word of God gives us the best model, and what it tells us is this. A true leader is a humble, bold servant. A humble, bold servant. I know when you see humble and bold together, you're like, what? How can this be? They don't seem to be uh, you know, fitting together very well, and some people think humble's a bad thing. Some people think bold's a bad thing. We're going to see today they're both good things. Humble, bold leadership. So if you're able, please stand with me. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. What we're going to see today is, is that we need to have bold words with a humble posture. If you're a Christian, the gospel has humbled you, made you bold, humbled you to know that you're 100% dependent on God and 100% responsible to speak boldly the truth that because you're awestruck at the glory of Christ and you're unafraid to declare it. So I'm going to read the inerrant, inspired, infallible word of God and 2 Corinthians 10, 1 through 6. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would have your way in our hearts today, all for your glory. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. 2 Corinthians is a fascinating letter. I absolutely love it. Now, when you think about 1 and 2 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians was all correction. It was all the things they were doing wrong and all the things they needed to make right. 
1 Corinthians was written in A.D. 55 to a church that was floundering and fracturing under the temptations of ungodly Corinth and ungodly desires in their own hearts. 2 Corinthians was written about a year later, but it's different. Chapters 1 through 9, Paul is addressing uh, those in the church that are repentant, those who listened to the, to the previous letter. But the tone changes when you get to chapter 10, and Paul now begins to address the unrepentant, those who didn't listen to 1 Corinthians. Paul's values are immediately evident. He's imitating Christ in his life and his leadership, and he wants the Corinthians to do the same. Now, we are in the, the last of eight weeks on what we value. By the way, just a brief aside where we're going and preaching in the summer and then into the fall. Uh, in uh, the rest of the summer, we're going to look at the five main ideas of the, of the Protestant Reformation. It's the 500th anniversary this year of Reformation. You need to know about that if you're not aware. Um, also, uh, in, on September 3rd, I'm going to start preaching through Romans verse by verse. It's going to take us a while. But now we're looking at our values, and we're really wrapping it up today with this eighth value, humble, bold leadership. And now, just talk about our values for a moment. You're going to do what you value. You can say you value something, but if you don't do it, then the thing you do is really what you value. If you value yourself above all, you will engage in self-protection all the time. If you value Jesus above all, you will serve his purposes all the time. Now, as a church, because of who Jesus is and what he does, we value some things very highly. We value God-centered worship, where our wills are surrendered to God, and we seek to know and actively obey his word. We value Christ-centered preaching, spirit-empowered proclamation of the word of God, where we read it, we explain it, we apply it in the spirit's power, which is what I am feebly, uh, dependently attempting to do today, and any day God gives me to stand up here. Uh, we, we value God-dependent prayer. We have an ongoing conversation with God where we have hearts that are sensitive to uh, the, the, the will of God, and we seek that. We seek God's good pleasure. We value gospel-changed relationships where we are living our unity in Christ. Where we display humility and gentleness and patience. Where we are forbearing. Where we take no offense. So that Christ's body is a shining, you know, bright testimony of the transforming power of Christ. We have looked at multi-generational ministry, which we value. God's discipleship plan, where you love Jesus, you obey the word, and you teach others of all ages to do the same. We value Christ-honoring service, which is self-forgetting sacrifice, where we are faithfully working for Christ as we watch and wait for his return. And then last week, we looked at God-confident outreach. We looked at Acts 1.8 and the idea of his spirit-powered representatives representing Christ everywhere where we go everywhere possible to reach everyone imaginable with the gospel. And today we land on humble, bold leadership, which in, in, in another way of saying it, say it this way, servant-hearted love for God's glory and others' good. We have been following the same outline every week, why change on week eight, right? We're going to do the same thing today. We're going to ask the question, why do we value it? What are the barriers? How can we grow? That's where we'll go today. So why do we value humble, bold leadership? And quite simply, and this is the main point today, we've already said it, a true leader is a humble, bold servant. A true leader is a humble, bold servant. Leadership in Christ's economy is 
servanthood, where you have bold words but a humble posture. Because if you're a Christian, God has humbled you in the gospel and made you bold. 100% dependent on God, 100% responsible to boldly speak the truth. You're awestruck at the glory of Christ. You're unafraid to declare the truth. And when we talk about humble, bold leadership, but the first thing we've got to think about is Jesus. We've got to think about what Jesus modeled for us. Jesus perfectly modeled humble, bold leadership. Look with me at chapter 10, verse 1, here in 2 Corinthians. And here's how Paul starts in verse 1. He says, I, Paul, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So right away, he's talking about how he's imitating Christ, Christ's humble and gentle character, which was prophesied in the Old Testament, which was proven in Christ's life and ministry and teaching. I think of Isaiah 53, 7, where it talks about Jesus as the suffering servant of God. And verse 7, two times says, while he was suffering, he did not open his mouth. He did not open his mouth. The one who spoke the world into existence humbly took the punishment that our sins deserved. But first we want to look at his courage. I want you to think about his courage, then we'll look at his humility. Jesus was bold. Jesus was courageous. Think about the I am sayings in the Gospel of John. Think about the bold claim, I am the resurrection and the life, John eleven twenty five. Think about this, that with each I am, Jesus is proclaiming himself as God. Exodus 3, 14, God revealed himself to Moses as Yahweh, the covenant name of God. I am who I am. So when the Jews heard Jesus say, before Abraham was, I am, they knew exactly what he meant, and that's why they tried to kill him for blasphemy. Think of his courage when he's given the seven woes in Matthew chapter 23. He is speaking fearlessly to scribes and Pharisees, calling them hypocrites, blind guides, fools, whitewashed tombs, lawless, serpents, brood of vipers. He says to them, how are you going to escape being sentenced to hell? Pretty bold. He's also humble, compassionate. So right after the woes, he gives all these woes, calls them all those names, true names by the way, he weeps over Jerusalem right after that. He says, I would have gathered your children together, Matthew 23, 37. He loved people. He, he saw that they were committing eternal spiritual suicide, and he's weeping over Jerusalem, and then he's about to judge their obstinacy and their sin in himself. Never had boldness for his own rights. Philippians 2 tells us he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross honor the Father to save us, in love coming to sacrifice, tough love, substituting himself in our place. And here's the one able to cast into hell, saying, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. How compassionate to tell them. And Jesus' love for those who misunderstood him and those who opposed him uh, is seen most clearly at the cross as he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 34. You think about Jesus and he is best at power under control. 1 Peter chapter 2. Go to 1 Peter 2. 
and, and we read what Jesus did and how he did it. First Peter chapter 2. Verse 21. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And then verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. The one who said, Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, the one who said, describing himself, I am gentle and humble in heart. The one that Matthew 12, 20 describes as not wanting to crush the bruised reed. The one that Peter describes as a lamb. First Peter 1, 18 talks about being, being ransomed uh, and, and we're ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This humility. Ima the image of a lamb, by the way, for Christ saturates the book of Revelation. 13.8 says the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. You've got the meekness and gentleness of Christ, humble, gentle attitude, patiently enduring unfair treatment, not bitter or angry, not seeking revenge. By the way, what do we like to do? We want to fight back with every weapon at our disposal, right? And then gentleness, similar to meek. But the same Jesus, bold to go to the cross, bold to clear the temple and call people to account for God's glory, bold to mix it up with money changers and religious pretenders told the accusers of a woman caught in adultery, whoever is without sin, you cast the first stone. Bold to speak the truth, no matter what the response. Jesus is basically courage welded to compassion. Ready to forgive. Because Jesus is a model of breathtaking humility and boldness in perfect harmony. That's Jesus. So if we're, you know, we're really committed to humble, bold leadership because this is what Jesus embodied and not only jesus but the apostles modeled it they commanded it as well again look at verse one so paul says i entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of christ then he says i who am humble when face to face with you but bold toward you when i am away and some of you might be going wow you found humble and bold in the same sentence sure except in this this verse i've got to explain it to you because i don't want you to misunderstand this if you've got a New International Version, you'll notice that humble and bold are in quotes. And the reason for that is because they had accused Paul of something that was not true, and Paul was being sarcastic now. He's basically saying, oh yeah, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold when, when I'm away. So he's repeating their false accusation. They mistook his compassion for weakness and his courage for arrogance. What they had said is, you're a coward, you're bold when writing from a safe distance. You're a wimp in person, and you're a bully behind our backs. Now we live in an age of face-to-face -face smackdowns and guerrilla tweeting, do we not? We, we, we live in an age of bold social media pronouncements behind the protection of a screen. So we get this. 
But they were lying about Paul. Paul was biblically humble and bold with a clear conscience before God and man. But look at verse 2. Paul was capable of bold, fearless confrontation. What did he say? Verse 2. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against them who, some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Paul's saying, I'm going to drop fire on you if you do not repent. I'm serious. He's like saying, look, I'm begging you, this re rebellious minority, don't force me to drop fire on you because I will if you don't repent. Now, how can you emphasize meekness and talk like that? How can you say such harsh-sounding things and be humble? You've got to consider the mindset and motives of Paul. They, they were not for their ruin, but his end goal was repentance and restoration. He was speaking to them for their own good. He was, he was fearless. I think of Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, when Paul explains to us how he withstood Peter to his face, boldly confronted Peter in front of everyone. It's like when you, maybe when you say to one of your kids, well, you did it in front of everyone, I kind of had to correct you in front of everyone. Sorry, but you made me do it. He withstands Peter to his face, and, and he, he says, Peter stood condemned. I had to call him out. How about in Acts chapter 13, when here's Paul before courts and councils and kings and crowds, and he is not backing down. He is bold. He is not weak. He is daring. He's, he's without fear, regardless of the consequences. He abandoned himself without regard for self-preservation, fearless. He says in verse 3, Though we walk in the flesh. He goes, yeah, we're real human beings. <laughs> we're here on earth. Pinch me, I'm real. But we don't war according to the flesh. Paul was not fighting spiritual battle for souls using human ingenuity and worldly wisdom or clever methods. Those are weak weapons that are powerless to free souls from forces of darkness and bring them to maturity in Christ. You cannot oppose satanic assaults using human ingenuity, worldly wisdom, or clever methods. He says in verse 4, the weapons of our warfare, the Christian life is warfare, you can read Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 there, are divinely, our weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful to demolish strongholds. Now, first century people would understand this. Roman siege warfare was all the rage in those days. Very sophisticated, by the way. Might be surprised. They had a, a variety of artillery at their disposal. Catapults, that would be cool, right? And, and towers and, and mechanical ladders and movable protective sheds and vehicles and tools specifically designed to maintain siege against the city. And lock them in. The Romans were known to go over or through walls. And if they couldn't do that, they would tunnel under them. They're going to get to you no matter how they could. And, and Corinth had a fortress uh, on a top of a hill south of the city where the people could run for refuge. And what Paul is saying is the strongholds of hell cannot be demolished with human weapons. Only by spiritual weapons wielded by godly believers. Ephesians 6.17 tells us that we take up what? The sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. 
And he says, with that, with the word of God, verse 5, we are destroying arguments, ideas, speculations, reasonings, philosophies, false religions, faulty forts where people, you know, barricade themselves against Jesus and the gospel. Because we're, we're, we're going to destroy with the word of God every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. This is your weapon of warfare against false ideas. Some of you are holding on to false ideas. You've got to smash them, let them be smashed by the word of God. Let the word of God reign in your life. Paul was speaking of a group uh, known as sophists. They thought they were so wise, the Greek word sophia, and, and they were known for their crafty argumentation and their exaggerated style of, 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 of uh, speaking, and Paul called them the debaters of this age. They have pseudo-wisdom that God has shown to be foolishness. So what Paul says, we're going to take every thought captive. Here's a humble, bold man following Jesus' example. He's like, we're going to take every thought captive to obedience to Christ. There's going to be a total destruction of fortresses of human and satanic wisdom, rescuing people from damning lies that enslave them, and here's Paul, like a commander of an army who has conquered his foe and presenting the survivors to Christ as captives. Now, they would have known this in Rome. In Rome, from uh, 200 B.C. to 100 A.D., it was the place where all the slaves were brought and sold uh, in the slave markets, all the captives. What Paul is saying, look at verse 6, he goes, I'm ready to punish uh, every disobedience when your obedience is complete, which is, Seems really weird. Why would you be punishing disobedience when, when they're being obedient? Doesn't seems kind of weird, doesn't it? What he is saying is, I'm not going to stand idly by while enemies assault a church under my care. And we're going to purge, we're going to cleanse as soon as the church is obedient. Basically, as soon as the believers fall in line with the word of God, the lines will be clearly drawn between the repentant and the disobedient. What he's doing here is he's He's exercising humble, bold leadership. Jesus modeled it. The apostles modeled it. And, and it's, just really, it's just right and biblical. It's, it's right and it's biblical. Peter was this way as well. Here's, you know, timid Peter, uh, a brash Peter even at times, uh, speaking to those who instigated and orchestrated the death of Christ not long before. And in Acts chapter 4, here's what he says boldly. Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, has become the cornerstone, and there's salvation in no one else. That's pretty bold. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts chapter 20, you got the Ephesian elders um, seeing this great example of humble, bold leadership in Paul's life. Paul said about himself, he said, I serve the Lord with all humility and tears and trials. It happened from the plots of the Jews. And I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. He's, he's bold about it. He taught him in public and from house to house, testifying to Jews and Greeks about repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus. So it's very clear. The Bible is, is, is just stock full of examples of humble, bold leadership. And it's also very clear that the barriers are, are tough against it. Quickly, I'll just give you three. Pride fear, and a lack of love. A barrier to humble, bold leadership is pride and fear and a lack of love. Pride. Proverbs 21, verse 29 says, a wicked man puts on a bold face. 
but the upright gives thought to his ways. See, uh, biblical humility, biblical boldness, is not boldness from the face. Uh, but pride is where there's no fear of God and we're self-willed and we have a, a low view of God. We think of ourselves higher. We need to remember that we have nothing and we're nothing except for what Christ has done. Psalm 138, verse 3, I love this. It says, you made me bold with strength in my soul. God does this for his people. I heard a story of Benjamin Franklin's dad taking him through a, um, a narrow passageway down into the basement underneath their home. And as they were going, there was the low beams and his dad said to him, stoop. And he didn't stoop and he got you know, knocked upside the head by this low hanging beam. But he said he, he learned a really important lesson because his father gave him a, a bit of advice at that very moment that he could take with him for the rest of his life. He's like, stoop. Don't hold your head too high. You want to be humble. You, you need to be willing to stoop and not hold your head too high. But pride raises the high head. And there's fear or, or timidity. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare. You want to get tripped up? Just be afraid of what everyone thinks. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Or lack of love, uh, no love for others. You, you're not willing to sacrifice your rights to make things right. And so you're, you're operating in a fleshy manner and, and uh, on fleshly principles. Uh, and, and 1 John 4 kind of lays out this life of love. Verse, verse 21 says, this commandment we have from God, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We love because he first loved us. So those of us that have these issues of pride and fear and a lack of love, how can we grow as humble, bold servants of God? Whatever we're called to be and do, be that leader, be that follower. By the way, we're all followers in some sense, and we're all leaders in some realm as well, be that organized or organically. But I want to give you three ways that we can grow in, in this value. We, we hold this value, dear. It's a biblical value. The first is this. You want to grow as a humble, bold servant. You have to have an ever-increasing high view of God. An ever-increasing high view of God. You can never have too high a view of God. You're not in any danger of thinking too highly of God. Our dangers are thinking too low of God. But a, a high view of God will give you in, ever-increasing humility before God. Paul, as he was preaching in Ephesians 3, verse 20, he's got this high view of God. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. That is a high view of God that frames and shapes his prayer. The fear of God, a reverence for God. And if you think about it, the fear of man brings a snare. But the fear of God drives you to the word and prayer. It drives you to that. It said of John Knox that he feared God so much he feared no man. We want to be like that. And we're called to be people with a high view of God, and people with a high view of God are people of the word and prayer. They want to know what God has to say, and they want to go to God in dependence. So a reverence for God drives us there to be stewards of the mysteries of God. 
and as the church is called, the pillar in support of the truth. Psalm 138, verse 2 says, You have exalted above all things your name and your word. That God has exalted above everything his name and his word. And then it says in the ESV, On the day I called, you answered me, my strength you increased. You look in the New American Standard and it says you made me bold with strength in my soul. You can be bold with strength in your soul because God has raised his name and his word above everything. The divine inspired nature of the Bible where you have the highest view of scripture because you have the highest view of God. And then we get back to our own lives and we're like, how can I, who, who is prone to be insensitive and arrogant or timid or fearful, become compassionate and courageous, become humble and bold? You think about Acts chapter 4. It gives a good example. In fact, go there to Acts 4. You've got Peter and John jailed for their faith and for preaching and then released and then commanded not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they, they told their friends what took place and just uh, drop your eyes down to verse 29, Acts 4, 29. The church then prays to, to her sovereign Lord. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. You see what's going on there is that they're not going to listen to the people telling them they can't speak in the name of Christ. And the prayer was answered, by the way. Verse 31, look there. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God answered their prayer. The church prayed for boldness. God made them bold. Isn't that awesome? How God does this? The Holy Spirit makes us bold to proclaim the gospel. We need to ask him for boldness. Boldness that sees the condition of the lost and cares enough to proclaim Christ as the only savior of sinners that they would run for refuge to Christ. We're strong in the word because God has given us his word and we want to have a high view of God. We're going to have a high view of his word. And we're going to want to give that word out. But we're also going to want to pray. We're going to want to pray. In fact, Christians, we have the privilege to, to get together and, and to pray for each other. That all of us are in this midst of this constantly fluctuating life. And there are many needs. And I just want to say personally, if you have specific prayer requests, share them with people and, and send them to us. We want to be faithful stewards of the time God has given us. And, and you are never a more faithful steward of your time when you cease from your work and you go to your heavenly father to ask him to accomplish more than you could ever do in your own strength. In prayer. Isaiah 26, 3 and 4 says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Trust in the Lord forever. We're in God the Lord, we have an everlasting rock. We have to have the highest view of God if you want to be humble and bold. Paul admitted in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, he says, look, I, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. So in his humanity, he's saying, I don't have any confidence. But in the Lord, he had utmost confidence so he could boast in the Lord. And Paul had set this foundation. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He had already set this foundation where 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31, it tells us God makes us nothing 
so that we would boast in him as our everything. That's what a humble, bold leader does. That's, that's why a, a humble, bold servant is, is, has such a high view of God. Verse 18 says, The word of the cross, which is central to proclaiming the gospel, it's the hinge point of self-denial and God's ordained instrument of salvation, is folly to those who are perishing or ruined or lost. But to those who are, who are being saved, it's the power of God. Which tells us there's a complete transformation of life that's necessary to bring you out of the state of ruin that you were in due to your sin. I was talking to a believer just recently that noted how much preaching goes on at some churches and how little life change happens. Well, the idea is if you have a high view of God and a high view of the word and a high view of prayer that, and, and you're a true believer, you're truly going to change. Because you're actually going to listen to it instead of just hearing it and not doing anything about it. And Paul says in, in verse 19, I'm, I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. He's quoting, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Talking about God's true wisdom and man's false wisdom. He says, where's the wise, where's the scribe, where's the debater? They're, they're brought to nothing. God makes foolish the wisdom of the world because in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. And it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And he, he says in verse, in verse um, 20, oh, what is it? 22, Jews demand signs, which means they don't believe the word of God. They have to have something extra. And God and Greeks seek wisdom. But Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But, but that's the way of salvation. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. And he says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then he says, consider your calling. Consider what you're like. And he, and he goes on. And he talks about God choosing three times. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, in the world to bring in nothing things that are. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that no human being would have such a high view of themselves and low view of God that they would actually boast in the presence of God. And he says in verse 30, because of him you are in Christ Jesus. We came to you wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. As it is written, verse 31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's a, that's a high view of God. You have to have an ever-increasing high view of God if you want to be humble and bold. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Um, but, and by the way, in that culture, they boasted a lot. So do we. Our culture is full of boasting. But we are weak and we are foolish. Paul David Tripp said this, Corporate worship, when we get together like this, corporate worship is designed to create such a deep need in us that we will give up on any help being found outside of the Savior, Jesus Christ. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. What's been pointed out here in 1 Corinthians is that there's this great separation between God and man caused by our sin and the apostasy and can, and, and can result in nothing but our doom. And then you've got Jesus, the Son of God. He says in Hebrews 10, uh, 7, Behold, I come to do your will, O God. He took our nature into union with himself, into his own divine person, for the work of redemption. John Owen said it beautifully. 
He said, we behold the glory of Christ in his infinite willingness to humble himself, to take this office of mediator on himself, and uniting our nature to his for that purpose. Christ, being the form of God, willingly took upon himself the form of a servant, willingly humbled himself, made himself of no reputation, obedient to the point of death on a cross. What happens when you come to faith in Christ is the cross makes you hate your sin. You receive power to live a new life in holiness. You have power to have assurance from God that the miserable conflict uh, with sin and human weakness that you are battling with on a daily basis will be over someday in exchange for a perfect existence because Jesus' death has secured your ultimate redemption. The, the, the assurance that our bodies will be resurrected and transformed to be like his glorious body. We will enjoy him forever. And so because of all that, boast in the Lord. You can boast in the Lord. Preach a big God who can handle all problems. A high view of God to do all things. Courage. Having contentment in Christ. You know Philippians 4.13 is one of the most uh, wrongly uh, uh, applied verses all over the place. It's like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, like all the things that feel good. Paul is basically saying, I can do all the things that are the most painful, the most uh, terrifying through Christ who strengthens me. And here's this humble, gentle servant slave who has this ever-increasing high view of God. If you have that, it will foster a, a humble, uh, repentant, uh, reverential heart for God. And then what will flow out of that is the second thing. That you will have an ever-increasing humble love for people. Remember in Matthew 20 when the mother of James and John come and say to Jesus, um, by the way, you need to give preferential treatment to my boys here. And, and all, the, all the, uh, the other disciples are mad because they're probably thinking, why didn't we think of this first? Now they're going to get first place. They want positions of influence. And Jesus says, you're not supposed to be like worldly power grabbers. He says, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be among you. Here's how you're supposed to live. Whoever would be great among you will be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And then he says why he came. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Remember when Jesus said to his apostles, hey, um, you're going to be my witnesses? I, I, I think to myself, you know, I think there's some things they wanted more than that. Uh, to, to, more than to being witnesses representing Christ everywhere, they want to be rulers, movers, shakers, speakers, overseers, masters, bosses, and whatever else their flesh wanted. Jesus, Jesus wants us to have love for people that is humble and bold, courageous and, and compassionate. Think about if you hold a biblical office in the church, elder or a deacon or deaconess and maybe you're an other kind of leader in the church, a ministry leader, that you have responsibilities. They're outlined in the word, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and 1 Peter 5 and elsewhere. But you have a responsibility to have a humble heart before God that has a posture that is bold to speak truth into people's lives because they need that truth and it's good for them. It says, all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. You've got to guard your heart. You've got to guard the truth. You've got to guard the flock. 
be good sheep, not looking for power and prestige. An ever-increasing humble love for people. You want to be humble and bold. You've got to have this high view of God that's ever-increasing and this humble love for people that's ever-increasing. And, and then one last thing. If you have a high view of God and a, and a humble love for people, then you can speak out boldly for Christ. Now you're set. Humility starts in the heart and leads to boldness in speaking. In fact, this Greek word bold uh, means courage or fearlessness. It, it means to be outspoken. It means to be frank. It means to, to use your speech and conceal nothing. All five occurrences of this word in Acts have to do with speaking. It's about what you say with your words. F.F. F. Bruce translates it, freedom of speech. Very last verse of Acts, describing Paul's ministry, he welcomed all who came to him, because he's humble, and he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus with all boldness, without hindrance, compassionate, courageous, outspoken about the Lord Jesus. We see the same thing in Peter and John. In fact, they said, hey, they're, he's, they're speaking boldly about Jesus, and they're unlearned. They didn't go to school to get this. Oh, they've been with Jesus. They saw the boldness of Peter and John. They perceived they were uneducated. And then they recognized, oh, they've been with Jesus. He taught them. By the way, if Peter and John had not been bold about the gospel, they wouldn't have been loving either. They would have disobeyed the second great commandment to love their neighbor as themselves. If we fail to preach the truth, we are not bold and not loving. If you leave your hearers Ignorant of a way, the way of salvation from eternal hell, that's not loving. There's boldness in words that comes with a humble posture. Uh, it's a gracious gift of God to me to stand and declare God's word to the gathered church. And it's also a gracious gift to declare his truth wherever I have opportunity. In my home, in my neighborhood, in, in this community, and in whatever city or country God, God leads me. I pointed out last week in my sermon that Acts chapter 8 verses 4 and 5 shows us there were two kinds of preaching going on in the book of Acts, both very significant. There was preaching from person to person organically, and there was preaching from group to group organized. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So you got in verse 4 preaching, euangelizo, literally gossiping the word from person to person informally, organically when you're sharing the gospel with people on a daily basis. Proclaiming, in verse 5, is keruso, which is preaching in a formal, organized setting to groups. I had an opportunity to preach person-to-person -person recently with my youngest daughter, Sophia, by my side. Uh, and I don't tell a lot of stories like this because um, I don't want to just point it to me, but I thought it was notable and it fit with this. But uh, uh, it was a friendly encounter with two men wearing business attire, kind of like what I'm wearing, I guess, on a Saturday. And so I asked them, they, they looked like they were dressed up to go to a wedding, and I said, are you going to a wedding? And they're like, no, we're out preaching. Like, what are you preaching? And they quickly identified themselves as Jehovah's Witnesses. And the Holy Spirit prompted me to unashamedly preach the gospel of the grace of God in Christ to them. And they, they objected, they interjected, they opposed with arguments, but they were my captive audience for several minutes by the grace of God. And they basically said to me, yes, we have a very different view of Jesus. But I didn't realize that there was another person um, listening nearby. They, 
out of uh, my sight but within earshot and and he walked by me after they left and and I asked him did you hear what we were just talking about because I wasn't whispering I wasn't yelling but I wasn't whispering and he said yes and this person was not a believer you could tell he was a bit startled put off confused by our conversation but I had another opportunity to uh, explain uh, where I was coming from and, and to give my testimony to him and um, I, I told him at the end of the day it doesn't matter our opinions what it matters is what God says in his word and you know his truth stands and I I think w- w- before God I think that I was humble and bold with these opportunities not in my own strength I, I, I was probably a little annoying to them um, I was definitely firm about not bending on the truth of the gospel and I know I did it imperfectly as a sinner saved by grace that's how we go. If we want to be humble and bold, we do it imperfectly as a sinner saved by grace. But that's, that's, what, that's what God wants us to do. And we're living in a very confusing culture, are we not? Uh, but, and we're supposed to be living compassionately and courageously, humble, bold, in every aspect of life. You know, home, work, school, marriage, singleness, finances, um, what we consume, you know, food, entertainment, technology, uh, our future desires. And, and that's supposed to be the idea is whenever you don't get what your flesh wants, when you have a forced fast from things you desire, it's painful good for you, it builds up your humble, bold quotient. And people will make fun of you and they'll think less of you and mock you and maybe be unkind and maybe bother to have your kids on the same sports team as them because, you know, you're going to talk about Jesus. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. We say we're willing to die for Jesus. But are we willing to be disliked? Are we willing to be deprived of some benefit for Christ? If you are a true leader, you are a humble, bold servant. You pattern your ministry after Jesus and the apostles. You're willing to spend and be spent for the souls of others. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. And any good that God does in and through you is cause to praise God. And you deeply desire to be compassionate and courageous, and you you want to deal patiently and lovingly with people and you're unafraid uh, you want to be unafraid to speak the truth in love that means truthing in love you're operating in the sphere of truth in an atmosphere of love and you seek to live like that in your home and in every sphere of your living and if you're appointed to offices in the church pastor elder deacon you soberly know you'll be held accountable for how you stewarded your responsibilities you seek to be a shepherd and a mentor and care for people that God entrusts to you and you acknowledge that you're part of a plurality of leaders and a team with Jesus as your boss. And your heart beats to equip the saints for works of service and be an example to the flock. And you actively engage in developing present and future leaders. Wow. Isn't God good to use us in such ways for his purposes? We who are weak, he is so strong. You know, until Jesus returns Leadership will be a tricky subject. Um, Again, everyone has an idea of what the ideal leader looks like. There's one perfect leader, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And and he modeled humble, bold leadership with breathtaking beauty, uh, humility and boldness in perfect harmony, welded together in perfect harmony. We want to have bold words with a humble posture, humbled by the gospel, and bold because of the gospel. 100% dependent on God and responsible to boldly speak the truth, awestruck at the glory of Christ.
unafraid to speak the truth. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you make true leaders humble and bold. Thank you, Lord, that any leadership that we might be able to exercise in any good way in our homes or in your household or anywhere you send us is servanthood. And we know we don't pattern it after the world, but after you, the living word, whose word is truth. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did not come to be served, but to serve and give your life as a ransom for many. And may we, may we give bold words with a humble posture, depending upon you alone. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.